0: welcome to women and manufacturing where accomplished women interview accomplished women
1: welcome everybody to women in manufacturing I I realize you were probably expecting a female voice this is our first anniversary show of the launch of women in manufacturing and Lou and I are were very excited a year ago to introduce and talk to one of the original Rosie the Riveters. And this year we have such a special guest on that I'm sorry, we just couldn't let it go. And Lou and I, for the anniversary show, wanted to talk to this incredibly special person on this first anniversary show of Women in Manufacturing. I know that I'm I'm very excited. Lou, I know you're just wound up.
2: I'm jumping out of my chair. My <laughs> chair, skin, <laughs> everything.
1: Let me introduce to you Betty Reed Soskin, who has a a 90 plus year story to share with us. And she also has a memoir out uh, Sign My Name to Freedom. Love, love, love the title of the memoir. Um, A memoir of a pioneer living. Gosh, Betty, welcome to Women in Manufacturing.
0: I am glad to be here. Thank you very much. And I'm glad to be anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> by,
2: by the way, before we get too far into it, did you not have a birthday back on September
0: 22nd? I had my 97th birthday last Saturday.
2: <laughs> Unbelievable! That's perfect yes. and ha- happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Okay, so we're going to go decade by decade, or do we want to leave out the first ten? No, well, actually, the first I decade. have a
1: question for Betty on those first ten years, and, and you may not remember were two.
2: Which okay. I remember when you were 10.
1: And part of uh, my questioning, Betty, is because I have a uh, love for the history of black people in America. And I'm very sensitive to to much of the pain that they've gone through. I'm curious, when you were a little girl growing up, wherever you were growing up, I know some places in the inner city, it's, it's absolutely fearful to even walk to school. Did you have those kind of experiences when you were a youngster growing up?
0: Uh, actually not. I, I, I was... Um, I, my first six years were, uh, of course, I was not in school. I didn't enter school until first grade. And mm-hmm. at that point we were already living in California. So I was out of the south. Um, and um, those years I think I pretty much spent my life growing up as a second generation Californian uh, not as a Southerner Mm -hmm. so that I escaped a lot of that pain that um, urban children might have been facing Uh, I grew up at a time in California when there really weren't enough of us on the West Coast, to make any rules about it, wasn't that segregation or bigotry didn't exist. It was that there simply weren't enough of us, and so there were not. It was not graphic. It was not. It was in gentlemen's agreements. It wasn't in signs. It wasn't in practices. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't in the house in the hostile South. So I was spared some of that in, as a small child.
2: As you got older, though, and I'm kind of moving ahead uh, three, years. Or, three yeah. or four decades. Uh, when you moved to uh, Walnut Creek, California, you experienced some of Absolutely. those uh, some of those issues.
0: Yes, um, and that that was um, after the Second World War. We moved into the suburbs uh, after I was grown up. I was actually pregnant with my sec- with my I guess third child. Um, and in 1952, we uh, moved into an area that was whites-only, because unknown to most people, the GI Bill, which enabled the lives of most most Americans uh, and and sort of assured them a future, uh, the GI Bill was was um, administered locally rather than federally, so that the local banker could determine who could get property where, mm. um, who could get financing where. So it was at that point in 19, after the Second World War that the um, uh, people of color could move into the places abandoned by the white population as they moved into the suburbs moving Mm -hmm. into the suburbs, it was enabled by their GI Bill. Uh, We had grown up, both my husband and myself had grown up in California, so that we didn't have any of those centers of built-in prohibition that Mm -hmm. uh, the migrant workers had. Uh, We weren't hesitant to... um, Purchased a lot in in the Diablo Valley, which was outside the San Francisco Bay area, to build our house, uh, and we moved into uh, an area where people had moved there in order to get away from people like us. We didn't know that, <laughs> <laughs> so that we lived with about five years of death threats. Um, oh, wow. It was. Uh, a rather miserable time, but that's who we were as a nation in those years. That same community, which, which was so hostile when we, when we built our house, mm-hmm. actually threatened to burn the lumber as fast as it was stacked uh, in the building of the house. Um, but that same community sent me to represent them as a McGovern delegate 20 years later in 1972. That's how fast social change was occurring in this country and in the area where I lived. Well, you showed them. <laughs> 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 no, they showed, they showed me. <laughs> uh, Betty, I'm
1: just curious, you know, back in 1939, about the time you would have turned 18, yes. when you were old enough to vote, it would be another 25 years, 1964,
0: before you got the right to vote. What was it like going No, to actually, actually not. I oh, voted sure. when I I voted for the first time when I was twenty-one because that was the that was the age of franchise, and I I guess okay. my vote, first vote was for for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> oh
2: wow! And I was I was
0: already at sixteen, uh, working in campaigns, working to um, register voters uh, when I was sixteen because I had a, a very enlightened uh, white. Um, teacher when I was in um, uh, seventh grade, I guess it was, seventh and eighth grades, who um, moved me. He was actually working as a campaign manager for a candidate for governor of California. And he brought me as a summer job into his campaign um, so that I could learn the process. So, I was already indoctrinated long before I was voting ah, okay,
1: okay, so I was just uh looking at the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five which is where I was coming up with my numbers yeah. Now it's interesting that you were voting well that, before was, no, that that would
0: that would be in the southern states that would not have been on the California coast.
1: Ah, well, now that's that's interesting. Thank you for clearing that up
2: for us. See how much you're going to know, Tim, when you're 97 years old? No, I'm going (laughs) to learn it
0: now from her. (laughs) And think of how much I've had to unlearn.
2: (laughs) That's fabulous. So, Betty, when you uh, were in uh, your high school years, uh, I, I, I gather you became an activist of sorts. I don't even know if they used that, that word in those days. Uh, but you became an activist uh, in politics. Uh, what are the areas uh, of activism uh, did you participate in?
0: I think the first time I. And most of this is called activism after the fact. Um, I only can go back and retrospect and realize I was what I was doing was activism <laughs> at the time. I, at the time, it was a social thing. I remember one of one of the social things that I did that turned into really history-making activism was was when uh, Paul Robeson was here. He was here in the Bay Area uh, for an event. I think it was during the uh, guess just before the Second World War, um, where he w- was here as a guest of someone who was a friend of, of my parents. Um, and he, as as an aside, um, he was picketing the Paramount Theater in downtown Oakland against Walt Disney's Song of the South. And um, I was invited and. Um, by friends to participate in that, and I marched with him in front of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it um, I remember that we were given a lemonade party after that was over at the, the home of, of um, the, the host of uh, Robson's, and I played spin the bottle and got kissed on the cheek by Paul Robson.
2: <laughs> that may have been <laughs> my first.
0: My first active act, (laughs) and I I think I was all of maybe 17, 18. Well, it was interesting that
1: you were involved in the uh, ceremony to honor Rosie the Riveters and given the microphone and had an opportunity to speak about there were no black Rosies. Can you share a little of that with our listeners?
0: Yeah, well, there, there really, there really were Black rosies. It's just that I didn't consider myself one of them. If you, oh. if you knew that um, I entered the Rosie, the National Park scene, um, pretty much in the year two thousand for two thousand and three, maybe four, um, and it was at a time when I was working as a, a field representative for a member of the California state assembly, and this park rose in the area where, where uh, which was my assembly district, and so that first the first echoes of of my activism was the parks came about through that window. Um, I was attending the planning meetings because the Department of Interior was, the National Park Service was gathered here to um, begin to shape this, this park because it was one of the earliest of the urban parks, and that was at a time, I guess, in the early 60s, maybe, when they um, it became a, the uh, National Park Service became aware of the fact that. Every single taxpayer was funding the creation, the development, and the maintenance of this incredible system of national parks. But it was only the people who had the financial resources and the leisure time who could afford to visit them. And Mm. for the first time, they began to see the need to develop urban parks. But there were no models for those. You know, how do you develop a national park without any federal lands in the first place? Urban parks involved a very, very different uh, set of prescriptions. And so this park had been created uh, in the legislation on scattered sites that lay throughout the city of Richmond, and the city of Richmond had been selected because there were more still-standing structures through which to interpret that home front history than any other place in the country. But those sites were all, uh, uh, scattered sites were all either owned privately by, um, uh, um, civically by nonprofits. Uh, they were not connected to one another. How do you connect a, a, a national How do you build a national park that, that where all this, the sites are disconnected from one another? There were These answers that were that were posed went by the planners and it was at those planning meetings when those questions were were being explored by the the uh, um, owners of said properties and the community and I was attended those meetings as a field representative for the California State <laughs> Assembly. And in so discovering, realized that in 1942, it took $47.25 a week to support a family of five. And that was if you were white. But our fathers and our uncles, as black people, were all members of the service workers' generation. They were the janitors and the cooks and the waiters and the Pullman porters and the bellhops and the laborers and they earned twenty-five to thirty-five dollars a week. So the women in my family had been working outside their homes since slavery. It had always taken two wages to support black families. So if Women were being celebrated as Rosie the Riveter um, because that was the first time women were were introduced into the the um, uh, non traditional labor force. But but I didn't consider myself a Rosie because my family had been involved in in labor in in traditional labor for many 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 decades. So I never considered myself a part of that. Hmm. But when the park was being planned, it was very clear that the park was being planned around the myth or, or the, the the concept of Rosie the Riveter, which was the women of World War II. And if 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 it was expanded to tell the story of the home front, because that story that history was far more complex than that. It was also the story of 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans who interned. Uh, It was the story of that great explosion at Port Chicago, Uh, two Kaiser ships that were vaporized, the loss of 320 lives, 202 of them being black dock workers, the fact that that, um, 50 of those men refused to go back and load those ships because nobody could explain what had caused the explosion, and because they disobeyed an order during wartime, they were tried in mutiny trials and found guilty. Uh, the first time in history we, we ever tried 50 people in single trial and found them all guilty. Um, we sentenced them to 8 to 15 years in prison because they disobeyed an order during wartime. Uh, so there were many, many stories. The story of African Americans' migration out of the South to find um, jobs in defense plants, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. So it was expansion of that story to include all those aspects of the home front story that, that I was able to contribute, but not as a Rosie, but as a worker on the home front. Mm -hmm. And so that's the role that I assumed.
2: So then uh, not to move too fast through your decades, Uh, somewhere along the line, I think when you were 85, you became yes, I became a
0: permanent park ranger. <laughs>
2: right, and still are yes. to this day. That's, yes, that's, that's, because that's all you,
0: you guys had forgotten all that good stuff.
2: <laughs> right, that's, that's right, that's right. Uh, actually, how I ran across your name in the first place, my yes. wife was reading a magazine article, and it was a magazine article about the uh, oldest National Park Ranger, and yes. my wife says, "Shout to Betty Soskin." And uh, and obviously we have, and it's an amazing story. And um, you're st- you're still working as a park ranger. Um, yes, so, I am. So do you ride around on a horse, or or uh, you take tour groups <laughs> <No>. out, <laughs> or you? Won't?
0: No, no, I, I it- do I mostly do outreach for the for the national parks. I do three to five programs a week in our theater uh dealing with the history of those that of that time um The park has been very very generous, very very supportive in allowing me to share my history with the an uh, audience um that um, we i guess are serving now five to seven thousand visitors a month um and um our our programs are, are booked up two months in advance. The secret of that, though, is that our theater only calls 48 people, so I sell out. <laughs> 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 Me and Hamilton. <laughs> so somewhere along the
2: line, I heard that you and Jackie Robinson... Uh, were Oh, he somehow. was. Yeah,
0: he was a date when I was before I was married to Mel Reed. Um Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I met Jackie. He was here to play from UCLA uh, against Cal at the homecoming, um, which was the black homecoming. Cal and Stanford played for the white homecoming. Cal, Cal and UCLA played for black homecoming, and Jackie was oh. here for for that. And um, yes, he was a very, very nice young man.
1: Oh, that's wonderful, uh, Betty. I know that you know. I was reading an article that appeared in Berkeley sides that Daphne White wrote of you and interviewed you. That was back in February of this year, and you shared something that I it stopped me in my tracks. And I told you as we talked uh, pre-show, uh-huh. I actually had to go back and check my check American history to find out the, the facts here. And, and the statement was that slavery was for a period of 300 years.
0: And think, yes. wait a minute,
1: the, the nation's only 245 years old. And they went, wait, I have to go back and find out when the first slaves arrived in America. And it was 1619. I was shocked.
0: Yes, that's true. It's an amazing story. In fact, the story of slavery in my family is fascinating. My great-grandmother, Leontine Bro Allen, was born into slavery in 1846. She was enslaved until she was 19, freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, at which time she married George Allen, who was a corporal in the Louisiana state-colored troops fighting on the side of the North in the Civil War. And together they produced three to 13 children. And in my, their home, my mother was born to their eldest son, George, and his 14-year-old wife who only and lived until my mother was seven months old. But my great-grandmother lived to be 102, not dying until 1948, three years after my experience in that Jim Crow Union Hall that I worked in during World War II. And I was 27 years old, married and a mother, when my slave ancestor died. She had raised all of the ascent of the the significant adults in my life. And my mother lived to be 101, born in 1894 and died in 1995. And I was born in 1921, and I'm still here. And those three lives, those three lives of my great-grandmother, my mother, and four lives, my grandfather, George, and myself, from combined the American narrative all the way from the Dred Scott decision to Black Lives Matter. If you can imagine that.
2: That's that's, that's amazing. Incredible isn't that isn't
0: that amazing. And add to that yeah, add to that the fact that on January twentieth of two thousand and nine, with a picture of my great grandmother in my breast pocket, I'm a witness to the inauguration, sitting on the, the Capitol Mall witnessing the inauguration of America's first African American president. In mm-hmm. the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial. Lincoln, whose life was contemporary with the life of my great grandmother, because that's how fast the time goes. Can you imagine?
2: So this is, I, I, my, I'm getting chills because <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to yeah. history. Yeah, can
0: you imagine that?
2: No, <laughs> and I,
0: I get I get to share that history with the audiences that come through. Um, it's an amazing privilege.
1: Wow. Well, the other thing that I was staggered by as I look from the first slaves in America to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, yeah. 350 years elapsed before blacks could right. vote in Southern America. And at some point, as you went through that, you realized that the rage you thought had dissipated was simply buried.
0: Where's no, that? it was dormant, yeah.
2: yeah. You know, it, 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 was
0: re- it was reawakened with, with Katrina. Because I had arrived in California Uh, as a six-year-old. I arrived in California as a six-year-old because that was the year in 1927 when the uh, city fathers in New Orleans bombed the levees in order to save the Garden District in St. Charles Avenue, and they sacrificed the 7th and 9th wards and the Treme, which was our ancestral home. And that was how we came into California. Um, And that rage that, I had been storing, I think, silently all through my childhood and adolescence, really, really was only dormant, because when I watched the coverage on Katrina ten years ago, um, all of it, I I found myself in bed in a fetal position, um, as if it all happened just yesterday. Um, Mm. But I think that the rage has served me well. It had been there when I needed it, no know, to straight, keep my back straight <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> when I needed it. Um,
0: because um, I, I think that, that that anger served my life. I think now that I'm very aware that I am living in the future, that along with millions of others, I helped to create in the f- 60s, that I've lived into that future. Um, Is that
2: 1960? Yes, 64.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, in the six in 64, 65, all the way through the 70s. That that period of activism created the country, the democracy that I'm now living in, and that I to have the privilege of living into that future and understanding that I am now have the power to create the future that my grandchildren are going to live in. Um, mm-hmm. and that's that's amazing
2: so uh betty what what would you comment about you know this is this is the year of the woman uh, yes. very very clearly, and being that you 've got so many years of being a woman <laughs> what, what would you <laughs> uh, recommend today for the new up up and coming women into uh, in, into this uh, time frame that we're in, and you know, there's all kinds of things going on, you know, in Washington, and uh, uh, with regards to uh, sexual harassment and so on.
0: Yeah. What
2: What's your yeah, take you know, on all you know, I don't know. I'm on.
0: wise enough um, to know how to advise anyone about their lives, or, or, and since the rate of change. Is, has been so boosted by technology that I don't know if I can even envision the world that they're going to live in in another 20 years. I don't know how to do that. But I do know, I do know that there have always been people in this country who have been striving to get it right. And that it's, just, it's as if we're, that the country goes through these periods of chaos and they 've been going through them cyclically ever in cycles ever since seventeen seventy six and then we 're in another one of them right now and it 's in those periods, those cycles uh, of chaos when democracy is being redefined, and that we have access to the reset buttons, and that it's it's it 's as if we 're living on an upward spiral, we keep touching the same places at higher and higher levels. And each time we touch them, we're setting, the, we're setting the stage for the next generation. And that if it hadn't been that there were enough of us always trying to get it right, we would not be where we are. I would still be enslaved like my great-grandmother was. And that history may have been written by the people who got it wrong, <laughs> but the people who got it right have prevailed that we are still moving, that, that, that every generation has to recreate democracy in its time, or it will die, that, that, that it doesn't matter whether we explain the numbers of us voting by, by um, voter suppression or passivity, but the fact that 39% of us four years ago was predictive of the 40% turnout in the most recent election. An election where we only 17 percent of us went to the polls, who were between the ages of 18 and 29, and where 61 percent of us over 50 did vote. So we were opting for yesterday rather than planning for tomorrow. That that it's that it's the assumption that democracy is a fixed thing that it's not the demand dyna, dynamic um, um, system a governance that requires participation, that if we forget that, then we'll lose it. And if there's a, an advice that I could give, that it's that. It's that, that we have to recreate democracy, that we have to do that each in our own time, and that, that, is, that it's in this period of chaos that re- women may be defining who we will be in this next decade. And that particularly women of color Have finding their voices But that is absolutely An amazing, amazing thing That I'm glad I live to see Well,
2: it seems as though That you've got a real handle and uh, On this topic And that you have lived through Many cycles mm-hmm. Of uh, the democracy changing um, And uh, I, I would like to ask you How you feel about um where this is going to go in the next cycle? Uh, I heard you say that your uh, women generally are beginning to get their uh, new voice and Oh, I think this, yeah, we're
0: finding our voices. Yes.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. And,
0: and I, it's not only that; it's that my work takes me into the future, in that I have done programs in Silicon Valley uh, with Nike, with Google, with Facebook, with Salesforce, with with Adobe in audiences. Uh, the, the, the most recent audience was an audience of 1,300 people, young people from all over the world. They were, were part of the Adobe force. And the feeling that I had stepped into the future and that a lot of the questions that those of us in my age range and your age range, the, a lot of those questions that we're still asking, those kids have all answered. That that I feel so hopeful when I go into that new world that's already forming, that um it is an exciting thing that I wish I wish I wasn't, you know. I, I've given up buying green bananas now. <laughs> 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 I, I wish that weren't true, and I wish I could work out a Faustian bargain for another ten years, <laughs> because I think that we're on the cusp of something. If we can, if we can face the climate changes, the global warming, the um, the rising sea levels. And I think the answers to those are within reach. If we can face that reality that we're facing into a great future.
2: All we have to do is convince those who aren't convinced of the issues and the various cycles that need to be yeah. addressed and, and uh, That
0: and uh, that dealt may with. be the greatest that may be the greatest challenge in the next half decade.
2: Correct. Because Correct. after
0: that it may be too late. Yes.
1: Betty, I wanted to share with you that when I was Eleven years old, one of my favorite orators gave a speech at the National Mall, literally on my birthday. Not that that's why he did it. Clearly, uh, uh-huh. the "I Have a Dream" speech by Dr. Martin, oh my God, it is you my were there? favorite. No, I was not. Uh, I just uh-huh. uh, that's my favorite speech of all time. Of all of the speeches that people have given, it's that one that just most strikes me as. As beautiful and brilliant. Yes. Uh, What an incredible piece of work. Uh, But you were seeing it from California, uh, and you had some very interesting experiences when you were young with the Black Panther movement. Is that right?
0: Yes. I was living in the suburbs when the when the Panthers were formed. But I I became a bag lady for the Panthers. <laughs> I, I, I I gave I gave events and supported events that were connected with my Unitarian church that raised money for the Panthers and would would deliver them. Uh, I would drive in because I found myself in the odd position of being the only person of color in 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 within miles uh, in the suburbs at a period where black identity was was being defined. Uh I was involved nationally with the black movement but locally the the nearest thing to me to my being involved in the black movement was, was the Panthers. Um and I would drive in into the urban centers in order to pick up and and march with them because <laughs> I was in the position of living among the people who had the power the political power to change, the, to, to bring the social changes about that were needed in the inner cities, and that I was in a position to influence that world, and I was being asked to explain what was happening in the cities. And at first, I would wonder, why are they asking me? I mean, why <laughs> should I know that? I'm I'm a suburbanite. And then I began to realize that that my job as a middle-class African-American living a suburban life, was to be a conduit for power because nobody was going to give power to someone standing on the corner with a brick in his hand. But I was choking on it and that I had to arm myself by participating in the inner cities in order to be able to connect that power by being a conduit for power. And that's what I spent the 60s and 70s being. Um, it was a rather unique position, but, but I did that not only locally, but nationally. So, so, Betty, aside from
2: the fact that you were an activist and uh, uh, became middle class, and uh, today you are a author, you're a songwriter, you are an author, of a uh, very well-selling book, um, and a park ranger—the oldest park ranger in the United States, maybe forever since the National Park <laughs> Service. Uh, oh, I'm going right! You, I'm
0: going right, right
2: from the park to the cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to stop at the stoplights, huh?
0: So, no. what is it?
2: So what is it that you do now to keep busy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I I am busier than anyone should be even at the age half my age. And the thing is that it's um it's where my energy comes from. I really I want to be all used up. I want there to be nothing left to put in that box <laughs> i plan- I plan to be active until I can no longer be um and fortunately, I'm supported in that wish and in that work by a federal agency that that um, is is um seeing to it that as long as I want to be here, I can do that work. And and my replacement hasn't yet shown up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Betty,
1: I'm curious because you've been through so much of this and from your eyes, seen it from a different perspective than us old white guys. I'm one of those old white guys. uh, And we see such division in America today, uh, even in our national politics, are awful. Uh, They can't even seem to carry on a conversation with the other side. And trying to speak to this subject, even myself personally, I find it difficult to open a conversation uh, because the word racist is thrown around so freely and quickly. Uh, What's it going to take to heal?
0: I wish I were wise enough to know the answer to that. I, I, I don't really know. I, I do know that some of our some some of our energy comes from that debate, and it probably will always be there because I don't think that democracy ever is ever going to be fixed. I think mm-hmm. it's a process that it that every generation has to recreate it, and in that in 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 the doing the 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 debate is going to always be changeable. Um, I think that some of that's good. Um, I think that where we are now is a stuck place. I, I think that, um, that we're, going to get, we're going to work our way through this because the freedom to do that exists within the system. I think that um, I felt elation in watching the Charlottesville Tiki Parade. Jews will not replace us. And I remember thinking, if anyone knew that I was feeling elated by this, they would think I was crazy. Except that what I was seeing was that many of us had been living with domestic terrorism for generations. And that it was masked. That the hoods were off finally. That there was Mm -hmm. no way for anyone to not see what we had been seeing all along and that that there was nowhere to hide anymore, that there was no way to encode the message, that maybe now, in this condensed kind of way, that it's going to be painful, maybe now we can get at it, that maybe it was hopeful. So there's an element of hope, even in this seemingly disastrous period, that we really can get at it. Because it can't be hidden any longer. Does that make so, any sense?
2: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. absolutely. You know, absolutely. I, went,
2: I went back,
1: uh, oh, it may have been a year ago or so, and I looked at uh, something that I don't know how many uh, old white guys look at. Uh, and I looked yeah. at who were the contributors to some of the most uh, curious and interesting inventions in America. And yeah. if you look at that history, you'll be amazed, I think, how many black people invented things that have contributed to America. And in some cases, because I now live in Atlanta, so I'm living in the old South. Um, yeah. And, and I see the mailbox on the corner, and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder well, how many white people who chucked their mail into the mailbox realized the mailbox was invented by a black man. <laughs> yes.
0: My grandfather was one of those. He helped to he, well he, he designed and built a number of, of important edifices in New Orleans, and he could build oh. nothing and put his name on it because he couldn't even be licensed or get get patents under his own name. He had oh. to do it through a white person.
1: Wow, I mean the saying uh, the real McCoy, which all of us are familiar with, happens to come from an oiler that they used on locomotives that oiled the, oiled the wheels so the train could – otherwise they had to stop the train about every 10 or 12 miles and oil all of the wheels. And yeah, the guy yeah, by the, the yeah. last name of McCoy came up with an automated oiler to move trains across America, another black man.
0: No, I didn't know that. That's great. Well,
1: there's, uh, <laughs> there's some brilliant black women involved in inventions in America. Just incredible. Someone would oh, dig- hidden, in- hidden
0: figures will give you that story.
1: <laughs> yes. If they would dig into this black history, they would find that it's such an important component of America today and the amalgam that we've become. And I'm sure they, they have no realization. The enormous contributions that have been made.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think that what's happening now is that as the the uh, entertainment world is opening up, uh, there there are more and more creative d- d- directors and designers and producers who are bringing those stories to a general public, to a public that is finally ready to accept them. Mm-hmm. Those 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 films are being shown in general theaters throughout the country, and they're not only being shown to black audiences, but to interested mixed audiences. The people marching on the streets are no longer, you know, for for human rights are no longer black as they were in in the 60s, But, but now there are young people and old people and people from every economic class who are marching for Black Lives Matter. I mean, we are a different country, and I think that that will accelerate into the next decade, and I think that that's where our energy's going to come from. I wish <laughs> I could stick around to see it guys but <laughs> 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 but i i well, really uh, i really i am more hopeful than most people are, I think
1: uh, having lived through those I've, yeah. Yeah, the Lord said we had five score and twenty. So you're going to go to a hundred and twenty. We're rooting for you, Betty.
2: Well, we'll <laughs> okay. have her, we'll have to have her back. <laughs> right. yeah, that's right. <laughs> Betty, about okay. a year about a year ago, year and a half ago, they came out with a new movie called Thirteenth, and it was about the Thirteenth Amendment. And, oh, I've uh, seen that. Well, it's uh, yeah. it's a fab- fabulous uh, documentary. And it was about It was about the 13th amendment That allowed for Prisoners uh, to be uh, When incarcerated Would be building and making Products and services for the government Most of which Were black people uh, Uh From after the second uh, After the uh, Civil War And it was It was a different form Of slavery And uh, we We've done several shows on it, and uh, we've had quite a few people on who have been negatively affected by the Thirteenth Amendment, and particularly manufacturing companies who are losing contracts
0: ah, to the
2: to the prison system. To the
0: prisons, right? Yes, yep. yes,
2: and uh, they really don't train them. Uh, it's just a warehousing of people. And, I know. Uh, I, I would recommend that you uh, follow up. Matter of fact, if you have Netflix, and I have a feeling you might do be have, that. I have, yes. Ah, uh, there it is. That's where the movie is, 13th. And great, I, highly okay. recommend I will that do that. It. Yes.
1: Well, it's interesting uh, that Lou mentions that. Kanye West recently made a remark about abolishing the 13th Amendment. I have read it. Lou and I have studied it. We know what he meant when he talked about, abolishing the 13th Amendment. He talked about amending that language, which allows the prison system to use prisoners, largely black, as Lou points out, as slaves. And we find it disgusting and repulsive, and it makes us angry. We've invited Kanye West onto our show to talk about it. You have lived it, Betty. I mean, this is just incredible to speak with you about the last 97 years, and your family history. It's incredible.
0: Well, thank you. I, I, I don't uh, think thank you is appropriate. But <laughs> well, <laughs> but, we but thank you us,
1: because yeah. what, you, what you can share with America and what uh, all African Americans can share, although slavery was truly brutal, um there are portions of it that is a beautiful history of the race that really needs to be brought out and I'm, I'm glad you're saying that the entertainment industry is doing more they are uh, and I'm glad that you have two documentaries coming up can you share with our listeners kind of the when and where those will happen
0: uh, one of them is um, well they both been probably in production now for the last three years uh, one of them is going to be the replacement for, for me and I think in the parks when I'm no longer here um, oh, it, it, will, it will, will be one of the offerings among other films the second one is a 90 minute uh, documentary that is based upon my music and um, it tells the story of the civil rights struggle as expressed. Because as it turned out, uh, I was documenting the 60s and 70s and 80s in song without realizing that's what I was doing. And those tapes of that music uh, was were you know hauled around in boxes for years and years without without Discovery. I never published anything. And those songs are being published now as a soundtrack for the second film because they carry the history of the Civil Rights Movement. So then that one thing. is scheduled, that one's scheduled for release at the end of next year. Okay.
1: Well, I... Um... Betty, we want to also remind our listeners that your book, your book is out. Uh, it's on Amazon.com. Yes. I'm sure there's many other places that can get it. Sign my name to Freedom, a memoir yes. of a pioneering life. I absolutely love the title. We will have Good. links to the book on our two websites, uh, MFGTalkRadio.com, which is Manufacturing Talk Radio, as well as Women and Manufacturing, our WHAM show at Women and MFG. Dot com. Uh, we want to thank you for sharing with us uh, these moments and your recollections and your experience in American history and even today and, and your vision of the future. Thank you for being
0: with us. Thank you, thank Betty. Thank you very and it's, much. It's been, it's been a pleasure.
2: It's truly an honor. Thank you very much. Okay. And we'll
1: be back in touch with Betty as, as she makes more American history Uh, We're bedazzled by her and her history, uh, and we want to remind all our listeners that this is our first anniversary show on women in manufacturing, and and Lou and I, who introduced the show uh, a year ago, are now uh, bringing it back with another incredibly accomplished woman who's done some extraordinary things in her life. So Again, thanks for listening today, and we'll be back again with you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to Women and Manufacturing.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.